We're in Ruth chapter 4 today. We're finishing up our series in Ruth. And I want to bring us kind of up to speed, uh, uh, up to date about what we've been about here at First Baptist Church on Sunday mornings throughout this year. You may or may not have picked up on this. Here we are three quarters of the way through the year by now. Uh, But all this year we've been talking about the story God is trying to write in your life. Our first sermon series of the year lasted several months, and it was, it was tracing the narrative thread of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and how the, the very first story in the Bible is God's Holy Spirit hovering over chaos, the, the world that had been created but was in chaotic form, and God made peace out of that chaos. He made a, a perfect world in six days. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, that's the story. That's God trying to redeem this world. And we ended the story with, of course, us standing with our King Jesus on a perfect earth that is perfectly redeemed. That's our destiny. That's the way the story ends. God is trying to tell a story in your life. Just like he did in Daniel's life we looked at a few weeks ago. Just like he's doing in Ruth's life that we're looking at today. And next week we'll start a story uh, or start a series about the life of the Apostle Paul that will last, believe it or not, until Christmas time. And we'll look at how God took the least likely candidate to change the world for good and did it. And how he wants to do the same through us. There, there are lives he wants to change through your life. There are impacts he wants to make on this earth through your day-to-day life. God wants to write a story in your life. What does that story say? See, the thing is, you are not an extra in someone else's movie. You are not a side character in someone else's novel. God created you a masterpiece, a work of art. You might even say a novel, uh, a story, Ephesians 2.10 says, for good works that he prepared ahead of time for you to do. The story that God's trying to write in your life is amazing, but the difference between you and a fictional character is you have a choice. You can choose to go your own way. You can choose to write your own story. And if you do, you'll miss what God had planned. But if you follow God's plan, if you live out the life that he has set forth before you, then you're going to live a life of fulfillment. Not a life of of ease, not a life of prosperity guaranteed, not a life of always getting what you want. That's not what the Bible says. That's what some preachers would have you believe. God's story in your life does sometimes lead to difficult and dark places, but it always leads to redemption. And that's what we want to talk about today. Back in the days of the Renaissance, the town of Florence, Italy, was well known for its art. And the town fathers decided one day, let's, let's commission a great artwork, a, a, a huge sculpture, some kind of a biblical figure to, to be placed in our town square. And that way, everyone who visits Florence will see as they come to, to visit the leaders of our city what we're all about. And so they commissioned an artist who was well-known at the time, a man named Agostino De Duccio, which is a fun name to say. Any Italians in the audience? De Duccio, right? Uh, Duccio was commissioned to build this or to sculpt this artwork, and he ordered a 19-foot-tall slab of perfectly white marble from a local quarry. Unfortunately, when the piece of marble was delivered, The workman dropped it, and a long, dark, deep crack formed on one side. Duccio was indignant. He said, I I demand a perfect instrument to work with, a perfect media, so get me another slab of marble. But the, the town father said, marble's not cheap. You work with what you've got. I'm sure you can make something of this. 
He dug in his heels and so did they. And for 38 years, nothing was done with that piece of marble. It sat in a, a, a warehouse in Florence, unused, and everyone who knew about it was embarrassed by it. It was a sign of failure. Now, you may feel like that stone today. You may look back on a time in your life where you had great hopes for your life, that someday you were going to have a happy family, someday you were going to have a successful career, someday you were going to make a difference. All the dreams you had, the bucket list you were going to check off, and somewhere along the way those dreams died. Maybe because of terrible mistakes you made, bad choices that you wish you could change but you can't. Maybe because of things outside your control. You got sick and you didn't expect it. The economy changed or maybe someone broke your heart. Somewhere down the line, your dreams changed. And you may think, well, the best I can do is just hope for good enough. And yet, there's redemption. There's the hope of redemption. When we look at the story of Ruth, if you've been reading along with us or if you know the story of Ruth, you may have a question in your mind, why is this story in the Bible? I mean, we can understand why Genesis is in the Bible, right? So there's amazing stories there. Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, the freeing of God's people. On down through the Bible, you see amazing prophecies. You see God speaking from on high. You see miracles. But in Ruth, it's just an ordinary story about ordinary people. Now, it's a sweet story, isn't it? And yet, I bet if we had passed a microphone around and everyone got over their shyness, I bet we'd hear some equally sweet stories of how you got together with your spouse or or the day your children were born or something like that. So why is this story in the Bible? God never speaks in the book of Ruth. God doesn't work any miracles. You're going to find out today. Ruth is a story of redemption, and it shows us how God can take ordinary people, three ordinary people, and weave them into his master plan for redeeming this world. So, four lessons we learned from the story of Ruth. This sermon's kind of going to be a, a, a review of the entire story and then a look at chapter four and the conclusion. Four things we learned from the story of Ruth. Number one, God is constantly working for your redemption. You may not see it, but he is. So just to review, the story begins with a woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech who move to Moab, the country across the Jordan River from Israel. They're from Bethlehem. They move over there because of a famine. There's not enough food. Their sons marry Moabite women, which is against the law of Israel, but they do it anyway. And then as time passes, husband Elimelech dies, the two sons die, Naomi is left with nothing. She says to her daughters-in-law, I'm headed home. In fact, there's four verses that kind of sum up where we are today. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she goes home. One of her daughters-in-law stays behind. The other one, Ruth, says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And that's when Ruth's trajectory changes. Now, you skip up to verse 22, and it says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, it said, And she, meaning Ruth, happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. You remember, Ruth understood that there was a law in Israel that said that any landowner had to allow gleaners on his land. In other words, once you're harvesting, any poor person can come along behind and pick up what you drop 
or what you miss. And that was God's way of taking care of those who were landless and unable to sow crops for themselves. Ruth says, I need to take care of me and my mother-in-law who's so stricken with grief that she can't even get out of bed. So I'm going to go gleaning this work that's very difficult that I'm not trained for. Imagine the climate in Israel was about like it is here. Imagine going out in the heat of the day and walking behind harvesters. That's what Ruth does to provide for her and for Naomi. Then it says in verse 3, uh, in verse uh, 20 of chapter 2, the man is our relative. This is Naomi speaking. When Ruth comes home the first day with a big armload of grain, she says, this man, Boaz, he's our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. And that word closest relative in Hebrew is the word that is literally redeemer. He is one of our redeemers. So what is my point? My point is this. You take any one of those verses out of context and you'd think, okay, no big deal. This is just life as usual. Famines happen, harvests occur, people move. But when you look behind the, behind the surface, you see God at work. Let me, sh- let me show you what I mean. So Naomi's in Moab. She's in grief. She hears there's food. She decides to come home. When does she come home? Exactly when the barley harvest is beginning. That's not a coincidence. Ruth decides to go glean in the field And she goes to the nearest barley field she can find. It so happens to be the field of a man named Boaz. The Hebrew uh, actually stresses this because it says her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Now, who is Boaz? That's the next coincidence. Boaz happens to be related to Ruth's dead father-in-law. Why does that matter? Because of a law in Israel that was called leveret marriage that said when a woman was widowed and had no sons... The next closest male relative was supposed to marry her, bear children by her. Therefore, she would have someone to take care of her in her old age and a husband to take care of her now. Plus, the land would stay in the family and the family would continue. And Boaz, whose field Ruth just stumbles into, happens to be eligible to be a redeemer. None of this is a coincidence. It seemed coincidental at the time. But God is working behind the scenes. God is working in in a very covert way for the redemption of Naomi to bring her out of her grief, for the redemption of Ruth to take her from being a Moabite. Do you know that if you were born in Moab, you were were not allowed to even enter the, the, the temple of Jerusalem? For the redemption of Boaz, these three people, God is constantly at work behind the scenes. Sometimes I know Christians say, I serve God all the time. I've not seen a miracle yet. And I'm here to tell you, you have. It's just that most of the time, even in scriptural times, even in biblical times, most of the time God's work happens behind the scenes. Miracles are rare, but miracles happen. And most of his work is unseen to us. We only see it when we look back on our lives from 10, 15, 20 years later. And we look back and we say, oh, now I understand why that happened. Now I see what God was up to. I was praying and praying and praying. And he was answering my prayer in a way I did not expect. You have to trust that God is constantly working for your redemption. Second thing we see in the story of Ruth is that redemption is free. So you remember last week, Naomi said to Ruth, now Boaz is eligible to be your redeemer. He's eligible to marry you and and claim our land and and continue the family. The problem is he's an older man and and he probably doesn't think you are interested in him. So I need you to, to let him know, let him know that you see him as a potential redeemer. So tonight, when he's exhausted after threshing wheat, I want you to lay down next to him in the barn where he's threshed and and just uncover his legs. 
After you've changed out of your morning clothes so he'll see that you're actually available, he'll wake up in the middle of the night cold and he'll see you lying there next to him and you're supposed to say, spread your garment over me for I, for you are my redeemer. Now that's a risky plan, isn't it? That is a plan that carries an element of risk. It's not a seduction. It's not, it's not trying to uh, impress Boaz. It's, it's an act of vulnerability. It's saying, I can't live. My mother-in-law and I will starve unless someone redeems us, and I'd sure like it to be you. Well, what if Boaz says no? After all, why should he say yes? Here's a wealthy man, a respected man in Bethlehem. Why should he marry this foreign widow when he can marry any good Jewish young woman, unmarried woman he wants? She's taking a risk. Why would he redeem me, she might say to herself. And yet, we know what happens, don't we, from last week. Boaz wakes up in the night. He sees this young woman at his feet. He sees her shivering, and he hears her say, spread your garment over me for you're a redeemer. And he says, God bless you for thinking of me. Instead of all these young men out here you could have chased after, you came to me. It warms my old heart, and I would be happy to redeem you. And it's a beautiful story. But it's just a reminder. We think there's no way this can happen. There's no way God can redeem someone like me, but he can. So there's this little story I've told the last couple of services. Um, There was a man named Harvey Pennock back in the 1920s, young man who loved the game of golf. Loved it so much he didn't just play, he studied it. He bought a red spiral notebook and he would write down notes whenever he'd learn a new lesson about golf. Oh, here's a new way to get out of a sand, uh, out of a sand trap. And here's what happens if, if, you're, if you keep slicing your drive. Here's what you should do to correct it. And he'd write these little notes down. And decades would go by, and he filled up that red notebook over time. When he was an elderly man in, in the early 1990s, he had that full red notebook, and he went to a writer friend of his, and he said, he showed it to him. He said, do you think, do you think golfers would be interested in something like this? Do you think there's a market for a book like this? I've never published anything before, but do you think there's a market for it? And the writer said, well, there might be. Let me, let me take it to a publisher I know. And so he took the notebook, and a few days later he came back, and he said, good news, Harvey. My publisher friend says that they'd be glad to publish your book. In fact, um, it comes with a $90,000 advance. He said, well, you think about this for a few days, and I'll come back and see what you want to do. So a few days later he came back, and he said, what do you want to do, Harvey? And Harvey Pinnock said, well, i, I got to tell you, I would love to publish this book. It means a lot to me. But I'm an old man now. I don't have any sources of income. And um, I've got a lot of medical bills. And and honestly, I can't afford $90,000. The writer said, you don't understand. They're not asking you to put up $90,000. They want to give you $90,000 free and clear. They published Harvey Pinnock's Little Red Book of Golf. So sold over a million copies. I know there's golfers in the room. You've probably had it. You've probably read it. And it's it's a great illustration of how So many people hear the story of redemption, the good news, and yet they can't quite believe it. Surely it's not that easy. Surely, yeah, okay, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus put himself in my place. He lived the perfect life that I should have lived. He died the agonizing death I deserve to die. That's a beautiful story, Um, but surely there's more to it than that, right? So I accept Jesus, but then I have to follow all the commands, right? At least the big ones, at least the really important ones. Right? Well, no. Well, then I need to come to him. I need to get my life straightened out first, right? I've heard people say that before. Yeah, I'm interested in Christ, but my life's so messed up. I can't possibly. I need to get some things straightened out. No. 
No, you come to Jesus just as you are. We even used to sing a song like that. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's it. We come to him messed up, broken, and he puts us back together. We come to him with nothing in our hands, just clinging to his cross. And I tell you what, anytime anybody adds anything to Jesus, you've ruined the gospel. Anytime you say, Jesus is our Savior, but you better go to this church. Jesus is our Savior, but you better not commit this kind of sin. Jesus is an absolute Savior, and God's grace is amazing, but you better do these things. You better vote this way. You better believe these doctrines. You've ruined the gospel. Redemption is free. And we're just like Ruth at the feet of Boaz with nothing to offer, and yet our Savior claims us. And that brings me to my next point. Redemption is free, and your Redeemer is willing to pay the price. That's an amazing thought right there. So last week we left off with, with Ruth and, and Boaz down on the threshing floor and Boaz saying, I'm willing to redeem you, but legally speaking, there's somebody else who has a claim. You see, not only was Ruth up for redemption, but her land was as well. Let me explain. In the Israelite system of law, God wrote the Israelite system of law in such a way that if the Israelites followed it, there would never be any generational poverty. There would be poor people, but they would be provided for. And let's say I made bad decisions and I had my piece of land and I, I did so poorly that I, I had to sell my land to someone else and I became a slave. But then my son could come along and redeem it. See, there was, there was no generational poverty. There was no fathers and sons and grandsons and great-grandsons over and over again just waking up with nothing. And the way God did it was in the situation of someone like, like Naomi, when she'd lost everything, she still had her land. And even though as a woman she didn't have the resources to cultivate it or the legal standing to sell it, someone would come along and marry her and redeem that land, would own that land until one of her sons came along to inherit it. You see how it works? Now, of course, Naomi's too old. She can't bear sons anymore. But here's Ruth. And so Boaz goes to the town center. The way to handle these kinds of transactions, you didn't go to a law court. You didn't go to the courthouse. You didn't go uh, to the city council. The city council, as it were, was a group of old men who sat at the city gates. And they ruled on the matters at law, the matters at hand. So Boaz went and stood among the elders and waited for this, this closer male relative to come walking along. This come, guy comes walking along. He says, uh, excuse me, sir, can you come here? You, are you, you're familiar with our, our cousin Elimelech, right? And, and you know that he died in Moab. Yes, I, I'm aware. And you know that his, his uh, widow and her daughter-in-law have moved back here and they're living on Elimelech's land. Yes, I'm aware of that. Well, did you know that you are the closest male relative and you have the right to redeem that land? Are you interested in that land? And he said, absolutely, that would be a great piece of land for me. And then Boaz says, but, and he springs the trap. If you claim the land, you also have to marry Ruth, the Moabitess. And the other man says, well, hold on. I take it back. I can't marry this woman. She's, she's a foreigner. I've got better prospects than that. My family would not approve. So I renounce my right of inheritance. They had to go through a legal process in those days. They had to, the, the, the renouncer had to take off his sandal as a symbolic way of saying, I will not fulfill my responsibility to redeem. And so there in the presence of all the city council, as it were, 
Boaz says, in front of all these witnesses, I choose to claim the right of redemption of Ruth the Moabitess and her mother-in-law Naomi right here, right now. Now, why did they have to go through all that trouble? Why didn't Boaz on the threshing floor just say, let's get married tomorrow. You get the dress. I'll get the rabbi. We'll make this thing legal. Well, because if he had done that, then people would have said, he just married her for that land. Or the, the guy with a, a closer right of redemption could have along, come along and, and filed a dispute and said, you people did things in the wrong order. I wanted the chance to do it. But no, Boaz did it right. Where one man was obligated to redeem and refused, Boaz had no obligation. And he redeemed her anyway. Because he loved her. Because that's what redemption looks like. And then... Here's what happens in chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. They're talking about Boaz here. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So I want you to get this picture. At the start of the story, Naomi is so mired in grief. She says, don't even call me Naomi anymore. Just call me bitter. That's my new name. But by the end of the story, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me grandma because I've finally got a grandchild. Ruth starts out the story as a woman who can't even enter the, the temple of God. A woman bereft of husband with no prospects, living in a foreign land where they don't speak her language. And she ends the story with the women of the town singing her praises, saying, one daughter-in-law like that is better than seven sons. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that Naomi is no longer sad about the loss of her two sons. Grief doesn't work that way. But it does mean that even in a time of terrible grief, this woman can say, God has given me something wonderful. My joy is not ended. In fact, it's going to increase even beyond my grief. And it's all because Boaz chose to redeem. He didn't have to, but he did. We as Christians need to remember. Sometimes we forget. Jesus didn't have to redeem us. He was no, under no obligation. In fact, if you or I were Jesus in the year 0 AD, we would not have been incarnated. If we would have been incarnated as Jesus was, we would not have died for the sins of humanity because we would have said, why would I go about this, this long and incredibly expensive reclamation project when I can just make new people, when I can just make something new? No, Jesus chose that renovation project in our lives, even though it cost him everything. While redemption is free to us, it cost him the highest price, and yet he was willing which tells you a little something about him. And then finally, number four, this story tells us that God won't stop until your redemption is complete. I love the way the story ends. This is where you finally find out why this story is in the Bible. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Yes, that David. Yes, slingshot killing a giant David. Yes, Psalm 23 David. Yes, greatest king of Israel, David. So 
God brings about redemption. This is, this is why this story is in the Bible. It's not just a sweet love story. This is the story of how God takes a very ordinary person, a Moabite of all things, and weaves her into his story of redemption. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 1, see, the story of Ruth isn't really complete until you've read Matthew 1. And you read right there the genealogy of Jesus, which if you're like 99% of Christians, when you read genealogies in the Bible, you see two or three begats and you turn the page. But if you read Matthew chapter 1 and you see the genealogy of Jesus and you understand how important genealogy was in the ancient world, it wasn't a hobby like it is for many of us. It was a way of proving that you really were who you said you were. Yes, I am a genuine Israelite of the tribe of Simeon or the tribe of Dan or Asher or, 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 or Judah or Benjamin. And here's my bona fides. And you would list all the men in your line. You wouldn't list the women because in the ancient world, women didn't matter. Sad to say, it took the coming of Jesus and, and the revolution that he brought into the world to, to bring women to a place where they belong to be on an equal footing with men in terms of worth. But in the ancient world, they didn't matter. So you wouldn't list a woman in your genealogy unless she was especially prominent. If she was a, queen's if she was a, a king's daughter or, or if she had done some great thing, prophesied or worked a miracle. And yet when you look at Jesus' genealogy, there are four women listed. There's Bathsheba. We know what she did, right? There's Tamar. You can look up her story in the book of Genesis, Genesis 38. It's even more scandalous than the story of Bathsheba. And then there's Rahab, a harlot. And then there's Ruth. None of these are women that any Israelite would choose to highlight. And yet all four are in the genealogy of Jesus. And here's Ruth right there in the midst of them, who's a forerunner of the greatest redeemer of all time. And it's just a reminder, God's not done with you yet. God is working. We as evangelical Christians, we think a lot about the day of salvation. I bet everybody here can say, here's the day or at least the period of my life where I knew Jesus was my Savior. And that's what we emphasize. Walk that aisle. Get baptized. Pray that prayer. But your redemption doesn't end that day. It begins. Are you saved that day? Absolutely. But is God done with you? No. Each one of us carries an invisible sign that says, be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. He is working on you. Just like, just like that white hunk of marble, that cracked slab of rock in that warehouse in Florence, hundreds of years ago, one day after 38 years of that thing gathering dust, the city council came together again and said, let's give this job to somebody else. There was a local official who had a son who was something of an artist, 26-year-old kid. They gave him the job. Three years he worked, night and day. At the end of that three-year process, here's what he had. Take a look. Anybody know that statue? That's Michelangelo's David. And that's how it came to be. It started out from flawed material, but a master artist made something magnificent out of it. And that's what God's doing in your life. Are we flawed material? Absolutely. Does it matter to him? Not one bit. That's where he does his best work. That's the true miracle. God is trying to write a story in your life, a story much like that one, much like Ruth's. The question is, will you let him?